0: Alright, everybody. Uh, I still got one minute left, but we got a lot to cover today, so we're going to start a minute early. And if anybody joins us on time, then that'll be great. Uh, so, good to see you. Good morning. Uh, everybody is, has braved the cold and you've, you've made it safely inside where it's warm. Um, last two weeks, we have been talking about complementarian theology. And somebody give me a, a brief rundown of what that term means. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, men and women complimenting, complimenting each other. Um, I wanted to, before we jump into today's lesson, one wanted to sort of give some clarifying remarks about how this, this really works. Uh, a, a lot of, a lot of the discussion in complementary theology boils down to husbands and wives. Uh, we talk about husbands leading their families, wives submitting and helping their husbands, and, and a lot of the discussion seems to revolve and be almost directed towards exclusively married folks. But complementarian theology is not for only married folks. I mean, this is this is an understanding of how we are made as man and as woman. Yes, it impacts how we relate to one another as husband and wife, but, but it's for all men and all women to understand this relationship. I think that, that singles, both men and women, need to learn how to relate to other men and women. As singles, whether they're in pursuit of marriage or whether they're content to, to remain single as God has called them to live. And so I, I think that complementarian theology, and I'm hoping that this morning and next week will sort of help us set a little bit, a little bit of this framework. Because I, I believe that complementarian theology establishes who we are as individuals, as man, as woman. And understanding all that God has created us to be as a man and as a woman and and how that allows for us to have freedom to, to live within the framework that God has created us to be. Yes. And so each of us as individuals have been created by God as either a male or a female and that's a good thing. You do not have to be married. To be a completed man or a completed woman neither do you have to have children to be a completed man or a completed woman these are not we are not lacking our maleness or our femaleness if we are lacking marriage or lacking children after all Jesus was the greatest human being to ever live and he neither married nor had children and I don 't think anyone us any one of us here today would say that Jesus was missing something of what it means to be human so All that said, this morning we are looking at the question, what is a man? And so we'll we'll start with a a fun one, maybe slightly risky one. Uh, What comes to mind when you think of a manly man? Or who comes to mind, I should say?
1: A leader and protector. Okay. Takes responsibility.
0: Yep. Leader and protector takes responsibility. Um, strong. strong. What? I heard some. I heard strong. What? Strength. Strength. Okay. So same thing. Nice. Give any any ideas? Any any certain people or individuals come to mind when you think that guy? He's a manly man. He's a man's man. My dad. Okay, your dad. Yeah. Uh, a lot of. I mean, thankfully, we. If you have. And grew up around a a godly man, a a strong man, a protector, a responsible man. It's great. Fathers provide the clearest example, especially to to young boys as they grow up, what it means to be a man. Others? My
1: son.
0: Okay, your son. Why is that? He's
1: taken on more responsibilities than a lot of men do. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Right.
1: He leads and directs.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And they're a partnership. Yeah. It's good. It's great. Others? General Mattis. Say that one more time. General Mattis. All right. Tell me about him.
1: There's a story told about during the invasion Mm -hmm. of Iraq. Mm -hmm. He approaches the tribal. lay down their arms mm-hmm. um, he says I came without arms without tanks, without missiles and I asked that you would do this and basically he is pleading from a position of power mm-hmm. um, and then he ends with and this is how I will return it you yeah, yeah. Right. it's good um,
0: Yeah, good. Um, so in, in a lot of our entertainment, in movies and TV shows, men typically have a, there's a stereotype of, of men in our entertainment. Both, and some of the stereotypes are good and, or they take what is, what is good about being a man and they, Stretch it out to, to super extremes. I'm thinking John Wayne and Clint Eastwood, right? The, the the man's man, but other stereotypes flip the script and and sort of highlight and uh, exaggerate the flaws. So what are what are some of these these stereotypes that we see in entertainment about men? All the idiots and the comments. All the idiots and the, the
1: sitcom, Dad,
0: Right? And yeah. Yeah. They are. Sitcom dads are a great example. Uh, Paige Paige and I used to to watch, and I still enjoy watching it. Everybody loves Raymond because I think it's hilarious and it's funny. Paige would watch it uh, when when Eddie was first born and she was nursing throughout the night. She would wake up and and watch an episode while while she nursed Eddie and eventually had to stop watching it because she found herself getting angry at me because of how idiotic Raymond was. (laughs) So I I agree. Sitcom dads are a great example. They are idiots and they are lazy and apathetic and selfish. What else? It's
1: created superheroes.
0: Okay, superheroes. Yeah. I think we we look at superheroes, especially young boys, look at superheroes and see what it means to be a man for in a lot of ways. That to be a man means being a superhero. Without weakness. Rambo, yeah. Invincible. Others.
1: There was a time period where you had men that were either their wife was dead or poor, so they were doing everything on their own. Kind of
0: nice. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. I mean, there's.
1: They didn't make them. They didn't dumb them down. Right.
0: Yeah, there's there's a a quiet strength that comes from from a a single father who's struggling and juggling everything all at once, but at the same time is doing it. Mountain men.
1: Yeah. Remember, the things about the third class that came through here actually had a student whose real name was John Rambo. That's
0: awesome. That's awesome. Now I I pose this question because. It is a question that I think is especially culturally relevant today, but it's a question that our culture is considering, considerably without an answer. Uh, the question is this What is a man? And, and I ask that, like, it, it seems like this should be a simple question. This should be as, as easy a question as there can be. God's first created you. Right. But our, so
1: Biologically created
0: a man Yes, biologically created a male, male. And, and I think that the reason This question is so important is because of everything In the, the transgender debate and, and the separation from biology and gender And sex and gender and everything that the, This conversation entails We live in a world That is increasingly unable To answer the question What is a man and what is a woman And you and I as believers And as people of the book, half to have an answer to those questions. We have to. We cannot be content to just say, well, it's whatever we think it is. And, and so I think that as, as has been stated, as Sue, Sue and Ron pointed out, I think that biology absolutely plays a role in answering the question. If we were to say, what is a man? We have to start with the biology of it. And so we could, we could look biologically and we could look at a, a male's body and we could see... That a man is a man to the very core of his being. That if you go down to the very cells that make up his body, you will find within each cell his gender, his sex, his identity as a, as a male. We could, there's, there's been studies that, that go into all of the things and how, how males develop. And I want to share some of this with you because I think it's fascinating. Um, and ladies, maybe this will help explain some of the things that you don't understand about the men in your life. So for the first seven weeks of gestation, when an, uh, a child is still in the womb for the first seven weeks, the, a male and a female child are virtually the same. They, are, they, they develop the same. There's, there's little to nothing that distinguishes them. But at eight weeks, a male brain receives a flood of testosterone. His brain kicks in and and scientists and, and doctors have called this even a prenatal puberty because the testosterone is so much. It is so strong that it overwhelms the development of this tiny baby's brain and it creates structural changes to that brain. Certain brain circuits like those controlling motor and spatial skills, as well as sex aggression, start to grow and develop. While other areas of their brain, like those controlling communication and language, are suppressed. And this will continue, this this testosterone will continue to shape his body and his brain and will affect his behavior from the very first days after he's born. As young as nine months old, boys will gravitate towards what is called gender-typical toys, like cars and trucks. They tend to like stories with conflict, good guys versus bad guys, superheroes, war stories. Males process information using only the left hemisphere of their brain. And they have a 25% smaller uh, corpus callosum. It's the part that connects the two hemispheres. So ladies, if you ever look at your, your, the man in your life and think, why does it seem like he's only using half his brain? Well, it's because he is only using half his brain. Male brains are, are more tightly coordinated. Our, our brains are wired to, to process information in very, very tight groupings within our brain. And we'll talk about women's brains and, and how they, they are different next week. But male brains have six and a half times more gray matter, which the gray matter makes up of the how we process information. And so we are better at processing information quicker. But and we, we are typically better at focusing on. Fewer topics with greater intensity. When we get a hold of something, we get a hold of it. And we dive in deep. Men can communicate about a specific topic in depth, which explains a lot of the, how men can just go on and on and on about their favorite sports teams. Because we can talk about it in depth and we can dive deep into it. However, men tend to be less adept at connecting these specific topics to other topics and to other emotions. You change the subject on us, and we don't know what to do. This could be why men often excel at activities that require local processing and information, like, like math. But this is just talking averages. This is not to say that, that men are, are better at math than women. I mean, let's not forget that the first scientist who figured out how to send men to the moon was a woman. Male friendships and relationships. They grow and develop differently. We we prefer, uh, we, we our relationships are driven by hierarchy, by competition, by rank. This is why fishing stories quickly get out of hand among men. Because I, you caught a fish this big, well my fish was at least bit this big, well my next one was this big. Right? We, we like to compete. Our relationships are more easily built, what's called shoulder to shoulder. We like standing side by side, working on a project together, doing something, a shared interest, a shared hobby together. We compete, and competition isn't not because we're trying to beat someone else. Competition for men is about an ability. It's about being respected by their peers. Men are more likely to externalize our emotions than women are, which often results in aggressive, impulsive, and often non-compliant behavior. Men are more vulnerable to major life-threatening diseases like cancer, or cirrhosis of the liver, or emphysema. This doesn't even mention brain diseases like Alzheimer's, which comes on much earlier in men than it does in women. All of these biological points just highlight very few of the important biological distinctions between a man and a woman. This is what makes a man a man, and we haven't even considered the the reproductive side of it all. Biology matters. And if you want to understand what it means to be a man, you need to understand your biology, how your body has been made. You want to understand how your brain works? It's because God has created your brain then to work in a certain way. Women understand that his brain doesn't work like yours. Sometimes that's a good thing. Whether you believe that or not. But we we think differently. We we live differently. Things work differently for a male body than a female body. And this highlights one of the ways that we complement one another. Men focus more deeply and in depth on single topics. Women can handle a bunch of different stuff all at the same time. Again, more of that next week. I, I think that biology is important. And I don't think that we can answer these questions about what is a man and what is a woman without looking at biology. But biology is not the end all be all of maleness and femaleness. Being a man means that God has given you certain responsibilities as a man. And within this, I want to to look at three traits of Christian biblical masculinity. What does the Bible teach us about being a man? And these three traits apply to to males regardless of age, regardless of marital status, regardless of where they are in life. If you are a male here this morning, each of these three traits directly apply to you today. So let's look at them. Christian masculinity is marked by humble leadership, gentle strength, and selfless sacrifice. Humble leadership... Gentle strength, selfless sacrifice. So if you've got a Bible, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. We'll look at the first one here. Alright, so 1 Peter chapter 5, if if someone will read for us verses. (laughs) Sorry, uh, 1 through 3. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 3.
1: So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepard the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge,
0: but being examples to the flock. Thank you. Now, in a few weeks, we'll come into to some of the deeper discussions about the, the gender roles within the church. And and this this passage that Peter gives us is directed, it is written specifically towards the elders of the church. But understanding and knowing what we know about the the Bible's view of of gender roles in the church, the elders were unequivocally men. Men were were leaders in the church. They were called to to serve and to lead. And the reason I, I point our attention to this verse, while it does specifically speak to elders, I think Peter's words here give us a great understanding of what it means as men to lead. This is, this is how we are called to lead. Whether you're an elder or not, if you're a male, this standard of leadership, this is what we have. So, what are some traits of humble leadership that Peter gives here in these verses? What does he say leaders must do? Shepherd. Shepherd. Okay. We'll stop there. What, is, what does he mean? He says shepherd the flock. What, is, what does he mean? How? What does a shepherd do?
1: Keep
0: them okay. Yeah, he protects. He keeps them safe. He feeds. He leads them to, to pasture. He makes sure they have what they need. He provides. Now we'll talk more about how elders do this and how elders shepherd. But how do men shepherd? And who do men shepherd? When? Say that again. Your family. Their family. Okay. Your family. Yeah.
1: Or,
0: or the vulnerable. Or the vulnerable. I, I agree. Charles, I think if you're, if you're here, you're a married man, you absolutely have a responsibility to shepherd your family. But whether you're married or single, you still have a responsibility to shepherd. And as, as Paige pointed out, those that you are responsible for shepherding are the vulnerable, the weak. Those without a shepherd. Those who need one. I think single, single men can still shepherd their family. Uh, it looks different, but I think uh, Lynn's son is a great example of this. He he can shepherd and care for his wife and his children. He can also shepherd and care for his mom. But there's one one facet of this shepherding that we haven't talked about. Men men are called in shepherding. Men are called to be spiritual leaders. Men it is it is your responsibility. <coughs> That those that you shepherd are spiritually nourished, spiritually protected, and spiritually led by you. It's your job. And we have have shifted this a little bit where we have have placed and we, women have done an excellent, excellent job of, of providing for their families, of pouring into their children, and of raising up children who love the Lord when their fathers are absent or simply, quite simply, just don't love the Lord. But for those men who do love the Lord, it is your job to make sure that your, your family is pursuing Christ. That means that you lead and guide your wife. If you're married, you guide her towards Christ. You guide and lead your, fam- your, your children through Bible study and teach them how to read the scriptures, how to study them. This falls on your shoulders, not anyone else's. We've outsourced a lot of this. We've given it to the church, and we we send our kids to Sunday school, and Sunday school is great. But if your children are only learning about the Bible once a week for about forty-five minutes, they're not learning the Bible. And then it's your job to shepherd, and that means spiritually as well. Or what else do we see in, in Peter's letter about leadership? Yeah, do it willingly. Not under compulsion. And eagerly. And eagerly. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. What are these two what are these two clauses? What do they have in common?
1: It's like the that they're approaching these responsibilities
0: with? Yeah. Right? Like there's something to be said about a man who Leads his family and loves to lead his lead his family, and a man who leads his family because he has to. Like one of these one of these men considers it a joy and a blessing and a privilege to stand in the in the responsible position that he's in and to lead his family. That God has entrusted all of these people in his life to come under his shepherding care. And the other one says, oh, "Fine, let's go." Right. Yeah, there's a, there's a big difference. So joy. joy, yeah. What else do we see in Peter's Peter's writing?
1: Not domineering.
0: Not domineering over those in your charge, but by being examples to the flock. We'll take each of those one at a time. What does it mean to be a domineering leader? Okay? Say that one more time. Like, I think the domineering is by like, force. Yeah. So it's my way or you're out here. Right. Absolutely. And I mean, we I don't think we, we can we could spend the next hour and a half diving into examples of domineering leaders, both in world history and in homes. Men have, have abused their position as leaders and have decided and and resolved themselves that God's put me in charge, and I'm going to lead with a heavy hand. And if you don't like it, you can leave now. That's not leadership. That's brute. That's 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 a brutality.
1: And then some people view
0: God that way. Yeah. Why? It's an interesting point, Sue. Why do you think? Why do you think that the way that we view men impacts the way that we view God? Because it absolutely does.
1: You have an unforgiving father, mm-hmm. and then you're not going to believe that God's going to forgive us. Yeah. Well, it says here, because you're eager to serve God, is why you should mm-hmm. do it humbly. So there's your root source, and if it's the other way around, oh. for whatever reason, because of the way you were raised or not, yeah. that's how people will be.
0: Yeah. I, I think but Darcy... Right. But I, I think Garcia hit it on the hit it on the head without even realizing it. What do we call God in, in our in our prayers? Father. 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 So so the men in your life and, and especially fathers, men you, for better or worse, give representation of who God is. A father is meant, now imperfectly, but he is meant to show his children what God's love is like. That every time your your son messes up and sins and fails, the father punishes and disciplines but always gives grace. Right, the, the father is meant to be this, this idea that children get from a very young age that when they look at dad, they can look beyond dad and see, okay, dad is giving me a glimpse of what he's like, of what God is like. And often those that, that have the most... Bitterness and contempt for those that even believe in God are those whose fathers gave a very poor example of that. Then comes ego. Yeah, then comes ego. Yeah, he says, Paul says, uh, not for shameful gain. Like we don't, men don't lead so that they can make themselves look good or feel better. Right. There's, there's a, there's a type of family. There's a type of man who leads his family into church. And has every child in pristine condition, shoes polished, ties straightened, marching in a straight line, and sitting quietly in the pew for the whole service. There's another type of father who is just dragging kids into the church, kicking and screaming, as mine were, shirts unbuttoned or half-buttoned and wrong-way buttoned. But this this isn't a a picture of... I I think that there's nothing wrong with having well-behaved children and well-dressed kids, but... I think there's a difference between a father who makes sure that everyone sees how perfect his family is and how pristine he's led them to be versus a father who's just like, you know what? We got here. I don't know how we got here. I didn't lose anybody out the car window on the way here, but everyone's here, mostly dressed, and, and we made it. Right, like That's a father who's leading, struggling in, in various ways, but still leading and loving his family. What else do we see, Peter? Peter, right? There's one more that we haven't touched on. Being examples. Okay, being examples. I think that's a, a great. I think we we've hit on a little bit already, Justin, with what you said about your dad earlier. I, I think that as as young boys grow up. Every young boy eventually asks the question, whether they say it out loud or ask it to themselves, every young boy is going to ask the question at some point in his life, what does it mean to be a man? And instead of asking that question and getting a a word answer, what they're going to do is they're going to look at the older men in their lives, more often than not their fathers, and think, oh, that's, that's what it means to be a man. And for better or worse, that's what they get, and they strive and pursue that, and I think Some of the reasons that we see so many, the the crime rate skyrocket in homes that don't have fathers isn't because the fathers are keeping things in line, but it's because these young boys are growing up without an ideal of what it means to be a man, and they're pursuing manliness in every way they know how, and it's all wrong. So boys learn by watching older men, watching fathers, watching elders in the church. What it means to be a man. I I think also, in light of that, boys aren't the only ones watching their fathers. Young girls will also watch and learn from their fathers, from the men in their life. Girls learn by watching their fathers, and they naturally look for a future husband based on what they see in their dad, and they say, I either want that or I don't. The other thing that, that... Peter says is that we exercise oversight. What does oversight mean yep making sure that are going the right way. yeah making sure that things are going the right way does oversight entail making every decision all the time
1: Oh no. you can delegate
0: right. There's, there's delegation. What, what did you say, sir? It's like carrying those responsibility. Yeah. Like there's, there's a way to just to, to know what's going on. Men, your, your calling as a leader, part of being a leader is, is knowing what's happening in your family and in your world and the people that you are leading. If you don't know what your wife is struggling with as a husband, I would say that you're failing as a leader of your family. If you don't know what your kids are dealing with week in and week out, you are failing because you're not exercising oversight because you have no idea. Exercising oversight means being the one in charge. Not not making every decision. It's not a do what I say or else. But it means being aware. And knowing what's happening in your little realm and in your little, little sphere of influence. Knowing what the people that you're responsible for are dealing with, are struggling with, are in need of. And then making sure those needs are met. Say that again? Redirecting Yeah. Yeah. And all of this, we haven't even touched on it really. This is just leadership. But we can't forget that first word. Humble leadership. Men lead humbly. Not for pride, not for position, not for selfish gain, not for ambition. But men lead for the good of those they lead. Questions, thoughts?
1: I know you're not at this point in your life yet, but at what point do you know when your kids are mm-hmm. gone? Yeah. Where's your leadership? Uh, where did that?
0: Sure, go? it's a great question. It's a great question. Um, I would I would say I would speak to, to this. I think especially if you're if you're raising boys, at some point those boys become men. And they become leaders of their own. And so especially for, for moms, there's a time where a, and it's not a specific age where I'm going to point to and be like, at age 35, this happens. That, that's not the case. But there's a time in, a, in the relationship between a mother and her son where you have spent so many years caring for, leading, serving, helping this young man become the man that God has called him to be. And there is a transition that takes place where now it is his job to lead you, and you. The, this this process, this transition is is very difficult, and I'm not I'm not saying that it's easier that I have the answers, but I do believe this takes place at some point, and at different points, depending on the relationship between mother and child. What about and child. I'll come back to that in a minute, but I think so. I, th- I think as as a mother, as a, as a grandmother, even there's. There's a time and a place where you, where your child looks up to you. And Lord willing, there's a transition that takes place where you then turn and look up to your child, to your son, as who can lead and help and care and and teach and instruct and and do all the things that that we've talked about. Now with a, a father and his son, I think that a father is never not a father. You will always and forever be the father of your child. Which means that you will always be a leader to this child. But that leadership will eventually soften. Right? When for for my for my son, he's seven years old, about to turn eight. I am the leader of him and, and and it is my job to guide and strengthen and help raise him up to be the man God has called him to be. But at some point, and it's not at eighteen, and it's not at some point, the leadership is going to shift a little bit. And it's not going to be that that I'm no longer the leader, but it does mean that I have to let him make choices and make decisions and lead for himself. For example, if if God provides a wife for him, it's not my job to lead his family. It's not my job to, to lead and raise his children. It's his. But it is my job to help him and support him in that and to continue to remind him of what God has called him to be. That's how I would lead Lord willing, we get to the day that Eddie has grandchildren, that he survives being seven. <laughs> but but that's 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 my my view on it. Does that answer question? I think it changes over time, more so for the mom than for the father. It just weakens and lessens for the father. Other questions? Other thoughts? Alright, that's one of three, so we've got to get moving Uh Number two, gentle strength. What comes to mind when you hear the word gentle? Considerate. it, okay? What else? No. No. Comfort. What else? It's good. Uh, water. Water. Water? Simple, flowing water. Okay, like, a, yeah, alright. Make sense? Others?
1: Soft
0: spoken. Soft spoken. Discipline without force. Okay. We'll come back to that. Uh, Proverbs fifteen, verse one says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. There's a sense in which that a, a soft answer, when someone is angry and looking and demanding answers, a soft spoken, a gentle word can appease and relent and turn that wrath away. But if someone is angry and you respond to that anger with harshness, it is gasoline on the fire. Uh, we see several, several examples throughout scripture of this call to be to be gentle uh, and many times throughout the New Testament, Paul and Peter and James, they all give at some point in their in their letters a command to Christians to be gentle. Now, we've talked a little bit about men and, and their the strength that God has given. Uh, I mean, men are protectors. We are providers. And that requires that we be strong. Adam was commanded to, to work and to keep the garden. To protect it, to provide for it, and to to protect and provide everything in it, which included Eve. And so he needed the strength to work the ground. He needed the strength to defend from enemies, which he failed to do. If we looked at strength from a biological perspective, men typically have about 10 to 15% more muscle mass than women. They have 40% more upper body strength, 33% more lower body strength. Not to mention the difference in the individual muscle fibers that make up men's muscles and women's muscles. Men are just built differently. Men are built for strength. And strong men are a good thing. But strong, that word strong, when we say that men need to be strong, we mean that they, we mean more than a physical strength. We need men who are strong emotionally and socially and spiritually. Strong men. Because the strong men, especially as we've seen over the last three weeks in Romans, the strong men carry the weak, and they carry the burdens of the weak, and they protect the vulnerable. But I don't think that strength is the difficult part when it comes to this this trait of Christian masculinity. I think it's the gentle part that we so often struggle with. Often men think of gentleness, and we think of weakness. We think of soft-spokenness. I don't know of many soft-spoken men that I'm going to look at and go, "That's a strong man right there." Right? When we think of strong men, we think of of loud talkers, people who can project, people who can command a room. And when men think of gentleness, we think of weakness. And I I don't I can't explain why that is. I, I wish I knew why because gentleness and weakness don't really go together. Because think about it, weak people don't have to be gentle because they're weak. No, no one has ever commanded someone who's weak to be gentle. You command someone who's strong to be gentle. It's the strong who have to learn gentleness. I, I think of uh, again, Eddie. Eddie likes to being a, a little boy, likes to test his strength against Dad, as every young boy does. And so he likes to grab my hand and he squeezes it as tight as he can. And he, he wants to see me wince. He wants to see me hurt. He wants to know that he's got strength to make dad tear up a little bit. And of course, he squeezes and he squeezes and he squeezes. And I just stare at him like, oh, that's cute. And then all of a sudden, he, he kind of relents. And he's like, okay, fine. But before I let go, I give him a little, a little taste of the squeeze back. Or just, just enough squeeze to make him go, "Ah." Ow! Right, just Not enough to hurt, but just enough to, to remind him that you're not there yet, boy. And and to, to just kind of give him this taste. Eddie doesn't have to learn how to be gentle when he's squeezing my hand. Because he can squeeze and squeeze and squeeze as hard as, hard as he wants. He's not going to hurt me. So he doesn't need to learn gentleness in that respect. But if I squeezed his seven-year-old hand as hard as I could, using every bit of my strength that I could, I would... Not only hurt his him physically, but emotionally. That it had hurt me. He used his strength without gentleness. And again, <clears throat> men can can very easily be brutish in our strength. When you consider this this brute strength outside of of a physical strength, we find that that men are, are tougher in the way that they speak. They're tougher in their tone, tougher in attitude, even when speaking the truth. Men look at someone struggling to understand a situation and they will say, or I will say even, well, this is just how it is. You have to deal with it. There's no grace. There's no compassion. There's no empathy. This is just it. Deal with it. Or they'll look at someone who's hurting and they'll say, walk it off. Rub some dirt in it. Move on. When disciplining a child. Dads can be demanding, over-demanding. And, and we can over-discipline. I'm going to set you straight one way or the other, boy. Right? Like dads can be too much and too strong, and we can even justify it to ourselves and say, well, "I'm just setting an example of strength in the family." Family doesn't need you to be just strong; they need you to be gently strong. I need to move quickly here. Uh, last one: selfless sacrifice. Don't, I don't want to spend too much time on it. Uh, here's the gist. Men, you are given responsibilities of leadership, and you are given the physical capabilities of strength, not for your own gain and not for your own personal advancement, but so that men can sacrifice for other people. You are called to give of yourselves, men, over and over and over again. I think if we want to make sense of all the, the stereotypes of the men on display in movies and TV shows, it's because this trait of selfless sacrifice is missing. You find on these shows, most of the men who who think to themselves or even say it out loud, I I go to work and I work hard, I do my job, I bring home the paycheck, I provide for my family. But when I get home, I don't want to be bothered. I want to sit on the couch, I want to watch the game, I want to have dinner, I want to do what I want to do. Don't talk to me, don't bother me with the kids, don't ask me to do anything around the house. This is my time. I've already put in the work for today. Men, your job doesn't end when you get home. In fact, the the bigger and more important job for you as a male actually begins when you pull into the driveway, not when you pull out of it. Selfless sacrifice means that men are willing to give up their wants, give up their desires, give up their dreams, everything that they long for. They give it all up to serve and to love and to lead the people around them. That's what we do. Lastly, where do we, is any of this possible? Can men truly be humble leaders and gently strong and selflessly sacrifice for the good of others? How do we do this? What role models do we have to look for for inspiration? Christ. There's a, there's a reason that Jesus was born a male. He had a gender. He had, biologically, he was a male. He was exactly like every one of you men from a biological standpoint. <laughs> But he's humble in his leadership. He leads 12 men and countless others around Israel for three years. He teaches them, provides for them, cares for them, helps them to understand his message. They called him teacher because that's what he is. And he holds this position of leadership over them. And yet at the same time, we read in John 13 that he got down, this leader got down on his hands and feet and washed the disciples nasty ones. He's gentle in his strength. Now, his strength, I don't think any of us could could argue against the strength of Jesus. I mean, the fact that he did any of the miracles that he did shows that he even has strength over the laws of nature. He can endure 40 days in the desert without food. He can take on any test the Pharisees threw his way. And yet he fulfills the prophecy of, of Isaiah, which says a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not put out. He tells his disciples in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And he is selfless in his sacrifice. He gives all of it up for the people that he loves. He suffers the wrath of God in order to save others from experiencing it. You want to know what it is to be a man. Look to Christ. That's the question that we've been wrestling with this morning. What is a man? And a man is Jesus. A man is Christ-like. No man here is going to succeed and be perfect in these three traits. But let me give you a challenge, men. Especially you're here this morning, you're a male, you're, it doesn't matter your age or, or marital status or any of it. Here's, here's the challenge for you men this week. Go find the people in your life who know you best. So if you're married, it might it's hopefully your spouse. Uh, if you're single, it might be a best friend. If you're a, a young man, it might be a father or a mother. But go find the people who know you the best and put forward these three traits of masculinity. Humble leadership, gentle strength, selfless sacrifice. And ask them to identify where you were strong in these and where you were weak. And listen to them. If your wife says that you're, you struggle with gentle strength, don't come back at her and say, no, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> There's your proof. <laughs> like, understand and hear what they say because they know you and they love you. And listen to them. So men, let's be men and be like Jesus. Final questions.
1: For one
0: thing. Yep. He
1: didn't have time for
0: a while. <laughs> No. But he does have a bride. Yes. What what other questions?